I'm Avery Arden, and you're listening to Blessed Are the Binary Breakers, a multi-faith podcast of transgender stories. Everyone, I am so excited to kick off a series of interviews that I will be publishing over the course of this month, all about the movement to defend Atlanta's forest and stop Cop City. I've had the privilege of sitting down with a handful of forest defenders to discuss their experiences with the movement and how faith and queerness interact with their activism. I've learned so much from these people, and I'm hoping that hearing these stories will help motivate you to learn more about Cop City and to do your part to defend the forest, whether you live here in Atlanta or all the way across the world. Before I introduce you to this episode's guest, let me share some background on the movement in case you're unfamiliar. Pay attention to all the layers we're working with here, how this is harmful to the environment, to black and brown folks, to poor and unhoused people, to the Muscogee Nation, to whom the forest rightfully belongs, and on and on. Basically, whatever social justice topic is your particular passion, this issue absolutely connects to it. Let's start all the way back in 2020 when the murder of George Floyd by Minneapolis police kicked off protests across the United States, calling for police budgets to be cut. Instead, cities and states took the opportunity to do the exact opposite. They increased police budgets, claiming that would solve the racism and brutality issues baked into the police-industrial complex. Here in Atlanta, for example, our city council voted 11-4 to to construct a brand new police training facility, in spite of a record 17 hours of community comment against this facility. The council agreed that they would lease close to 400 acres of Wilani Forest, the Muscogee name for the forest that they will be clearing to build this thing, to the Atlanta Police Foundation for this project. It's currently budgeted at $90 million, funded by companies like AT&T, Coca-Cola, Truist Bank, Chick-fil-A, Delta, and Home Depot, and insured by Nationwide. This sucks on so many levels, but let's start with what exactly will be at this training facility. Because even if you're on the side of police who claim that more training will help them be, you know, less violent and racist, just listen to what this training involves. If built, the facility will be the biggest in the United States, with a mock city where police can practice raiding apartments and using military-grade firearms, tear gas, helicopters, and explosives against civilians, particularly against mass unrest like the 2020 George Floyd protests. The mock city portion of this facility is why we've dubbed the place Cop City, and it will hyper-militarize law enforcement here. I don't know about you, but none of this sounds anything like de-escalation training to me. No, police will be learning more ways to wield their power against civilians, especially black folks, indigenous folks, and other people of color. Speaking of which, guess which part of Atlanta Willani Forest is located in? One of the parts primarily populated by black people. Atlanta is sometimes called a city in a forest because it holds four large forests whose trees help protect us against some of the effects of climate change. Naturally, the forests in areas with larger white populations are not being touched for this cop city project. The one protecting a black majority area is the forest that they've chosen. I can't imagine why. Ecologists have been warning from the start how devastating the environmental impact of cop city will be as it replaces one of Atlanta's lungs with asphalt and concrete, and will pollute our stretch of the South River watershed, which maintains ecologically vital wetlands and eventually feeds into the Atlantic Ocean. Without this forest, the surrounding city zone will endure increased heat and flooding. This environmental impact is actually one of the main viable ways we can stop Cop City because there are laws about how much damage you can do to the land and the water, and the small amount of clearing that's been done for Cop City so far has already violated those laws. 
If you want to help fund the lawsuit taking this angle, I'll link the Stop the Swap fundraiser in the episode notes. I've already been talking for a few minutes now, and I'm not even close to disclosing all the evil embedded in the Cop City project. But there will be time for more of that as this series of episodes goes on. And I think that hearing stories from actual forest defenders will help make it all feel more real anyway. So I'll close my Stop Cop City 101 spiel with just a little bit about the actual movement to defend the forest. Forest defenders have been actively fighting this project since it was approved a few years ago. Some organize marches, some lead legal battles, some fight from afar, some camp right in the forest. It's a diverse and very much grassroots movement. You'll hear our opposition claim that we are highly organized and well-funded. You'll hear them say that we are all violent. You'll see news of some of our number arrested as domestic terrorists. But in reality, we don't have a central leader or even cluster of leaders. The interview you'll hear today explores how this movement follows an indigenous framework of leadership, where all have an equal voice. And most of us are not violent. While the kind of violence that does sometimes occur comes in the form of property damage, something that can only be labeled domestic terrorism here in Georgia because of a ridiculous legal loophole that I'll link to more about. One beloved forest defender who has been accused of violence even in death is Miguel Tehran, who went by the name Tortuguita among their forest defender friends. On January 18, 2023, Tortuguita was shot over a dozen times by multiple police during a raid on the forest defender's camp. Police claim Tortuguita shot first and wounded an officer, but police audio from the time of the incident includes police exclaiming that they effed up their own officer, a case of friendly fire. What is more, friends of Tortuguita speak to Tort's preference for nonviolent action. We're not going to beat them at violence, Tortuguita said, explaining that our opposition is very, very good at violence. We're not. We win through nonviolence. That's really the only way we can win. We don't want more people to die. We don't want Atlanta to turn into a war zone. Recently, an independent autopsy revealed that Tortuguita died while sitting cross-legged with both hands in the air in a meditative position. Friends and family say that Tortuguita was a very spiritual person, very deeply connected to the forest. Tort's death should never have happened, as my guest today emphasizes. Someone like Tortuguita, who is Venezuelan, non-binary, indigenous, is the exact kind of person that police tend to target, and thus the exact person that the movement should have been working hardest to protect. But their death has been a rallying point. Their name is now a cry for justice, not only for them and their family, but for the land and all its creatures. We will stop the destruction of Rulani Forest, because that is where Tortuguita lives on. My guest today speaks of Tortuguita as a relative because of their shared indigenous connection. They also speak of the interconnectedness of the people and the land the need to center Black and Indigenous liberation and solidarity, and how critical it is for our movements to make room for healthy conflict management amongst ourselves. I've been talking at you for way too long, when my guest Sihasin has much more powerful things to say. So without further ado, let's dive into the interview. To start with, anything that you would like the listeners to know about you, um, within your comfort level, of course. Awesome. Thank you. Um, would it be okay for me to introduce myself and my language first and then translate what I share? Oh, absolutely. That would be awesome. Okay. <clears throat> so I'll start by um, saying hello, Yat E. She Sihasin Nazba Yaninsha Twitchini Nishle. Nakai Bashishi Nde Dashiche Nakai Dashinale Um Ahot Ego Naglina Bahinishle Ado Chinli Do Tohanakade Do Tiwa Territories Denasha. Um so my name is Sihasin. I also go by Hope. My pronouns are they them. I am Dine, 
with the uh, so-called Navajo Nation. And I'm also uh, Mescaleo Apache. And on my dad's side, they are migrants from the South, from Mexico. And so I grew up and consider um, three places to be my homelands, which are a place called Tohanakade Waterfalls is the translation into English. Outside of Jedito on the Navajo Nation, as well as Chinle, uh, which is where my great-grandparents and family resides. And I have also been living and have called um, home Tiwa Territories, which is so-called Albuquerque, a border town um, in Tiwa Pueblo Territories. And so I identify as Nugle, um, which is the one of the gender roles within my tribal community. Um, in English, I refer to that as two-spirit. Um, I ha- don't know if I shared my pronouns, but my pronouns are they, them. And I'm very grateful to be here. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much um, for sharing all that. Mm-hmm. I especially appreciate you sharing some of your language with us. Um, I know how sacred and important language is. So thank you for that. Thank you. What what got you over here? How did you first hear about the movement to defend the forest? And um, how did you get involved? So when I had first heard about the struggle to stop Cop City and to protect the Walani Forest in Muscogee territories, I had um, originally heard a lot more about what was happening on the ground from um, when the relative Torteguita had been assassinated by the police. Mm. And there was a lot of different, you know, rhetoric and propaganda and story sharing that was happening on social medias around um, the murder of Torteguita and the struggle out in um, Muscogee territories against Cop City. Mm-hmm. Um, I had heard several different narratives, um, which had really um, left me with a lot of questions. So I wasn't too familiar with the folks who were on the ground um, protecting the forest and engaging in struggle against the police industrial complex. And um, I had heard a little bit about it, read as much as I could, and just followed a couple social media pages to see mm-hmm. if I could continue to be updated about the struggle. And um, I was reached out to by some local um, indigenous folks, um, Afro-indigenous relatives who had shared that they were going to be having a week of action, that they wanted to bring more indigenous people into um, the space to talk about mm-hmm. um, the intersections of, you know, land rights and protection, uh, indigenous leadership and sovereignty um, as well as Black liberation and solidarity. Mm-hmm. And so under that specific, um, you know, request I, um, and, and call for action, I should say, I had shared that I would be willing to come out and support in some um, trainings to help people on the ground um, work together more, um, has been how I had been introduced to the space there was a lot of friction Mm. and tension between um, some of the um, allies and and settlers who were in the forest and protecting the forest and camping in the forest and then the um, local um, afro uh, indigenous and black and african communities in atlanta georgia Mm -hmm. Um, and so i was very interested and have always been very interested in talking about what solidarity looks like between Black and African and Indigenous people. And that's something um, that I'm very, very passionate about. It's it's a specific uh-huh. um, political analysis that I don't think gets uplifted. Yeah. And so for me, it was really important to really just get on the ground and um, get familiar with the people who have been engaging in struggle for the past two years um, to see, like, what are things that I can do to support? What are things that I can help elevate? And so with that, I had spent a total of three weeks in Muscogee territories. Um, I actually just got back a few days ago 
um, here into Albuquerque from Atlanta. And um, I was under the impression at the time that, um, you know, that there was a lot of people engaged in the movement to stop Cup City, specifically in the forest. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I got on the ground that I learned a little bit more about the gentrification and displacement of Black, historic Black communities and neighborhoods that um, were under attack with the construction of Cop City. Yeah. And um, being inside the space, it was really easy um, to really bring out the intersections of all of the different communities that are going to be harmed by the police industrial complex. And I was just very grateful to be able to plug in into the week of action Mm -hmm. um, when I did, because there were a lot of people who were wanting to uplift a lot of similar struggles and really center the local communities that are being directly impacted by the struggle um, and weave that with um, land protection and, and forest defending and political prisoners and all of the other um, struggles that intersect this specific struggle. Yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh, what you said about like, once you actually got on the ground and like learning more, I feel like there are so many layers to all of the stuff around Cop City where you think you've heard the most evil part about it. And then there's like a whole new layer of evil that opens up. Mm. And like you're saying, just the the intersections of and and the history of the land exactly. um, from <laughs> It being sort of, yeah, taken over and colonized and all the different stages it went through. It's a lot. Um, mm. Once you arrived in the forest and, and, and started talking with folks, I would love to hear what some of those conversations looked like, especially, mm. like you said, um, sort of uh, encouraging solidarity between Indigenous and um, Black folks. Like, what does that look like in practice? So... I was on the when I had first arrived to the um, to Muskogee territories, I was greeted by a lot of other relatives of mine who are also um, indigenous frontliners who had been requested and called and invited into the space to um, provide a space to um, offer political education and um, mm-hmm. leadership. I guess um, I kind of lean away from leadership I think that the way that leadership is talked about in like um, a lot of western movements is very hierarchical yeah and leadership within indigenous communities and African communities um, and black communities I think looks a little different because we have a more of a horizontal leadership structure at least those of us who identify as like revolutionaries as frontliners as land defenders and water protectors Mm-hmm. And so when I got onto the ground, um, I was greeted by a lot of relatives of mine, comrades from other struggles that I'd met over the past few years that I've been, been engaged in movement building and um, supporting, you know, struggles like Land Back and Black Lives Matter um, and the um, community that is really seeking to bring together um, African and Black people in diaspora. I've was really blessed to be brought into a space where folks were really looking to skillshare. Mm-hmm. And so I was able to meet a lot of folks on the ground, um, a lot of folks who are from Atlanta, um, from the community, and then people who were in the forest um, camping out. Mm-hmm. And at that time, there had been um, different things that were happening. It was my first time ever to uh, so-called Georgia um, and so I was really adjusting to like the environment and getting to know a little bit of the history. And I was pleasantly surprised, I think, to be greeted by so many uh, queer and trans relatives of different communities. Yes, I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> and I wasn't at all surprised to see like that it's a lot of queer and trans people who are holding it down mm. um, and really engaged in struggle and, and making some of those intersections. Those of us who have been invited um, are also, you know, identify um as true spirit, but also as queer, as trans, um, some folks as non-binary, um, and different, you know, all kinds of different spectrums of folks who had been um, engaged in struggle and had been following the struggle to stop Cop City mm-hmm. um, through social medias. And so um, when I had first gotten there, there was a lot of tension around, like, uh, what was happening in the forest. There was, like, 
a lot of discussions around race, a lot of discussions around how um, some of the different things were going to unfold um, the next, like the upcoming week. There were several different events that were being planned by so many different people. And so really just trying to plug in and then bridge the people that we are and that we're connected to, to the people who are on the ground was um, the main priority. So we had started out um, as a crew of indigenous uh, land defenders with um, offering trainings for a week before the um, week of action. And this was just to um, introduce ourselves to um, get to know people who were on the ground, offer some skills that we had that could be helpful in um, living off of the land in particular um, in a way that is that is good and that is um, centering the original peoples of those territories. We also brought with us um, a Muskogee relative who was able to um, reconnect to her homelands for the first time. Oh, wow. And um, connect with some of her own um, tribal medicine practitioners and ceremonial practitioners. And so um, in leading into the week of action, we actually had um, done a couple direct actions to elevate conversations around Indigenous people supporting um, stop cop city and supporting the movement against the police industrial complex. Uh, we were also able to support and participate in ceremonies that happened on the ground with Muskogee people um, ever since, you know, the Trail of Tears and the removal and the forced displacement and outright genocide of, of Muskogee peoples from their territories. We were able to support a space that would uh, essentially like like we were really honored to acknowledge and to be a part of mm -hmm. um, a ceremony that reconnected. Um, and I don't know, like almost like, I guess how I would say it is um, shared kinship between Muskogee relatives in the land, mm -hmm. which was um, something that is um, recorded in some capacity. Um, and the reason why it's recorded is not to you know showcase our ceremonies or showcase our medicine people, but to um, share the type of resistance that Muskogee peoples were met with whenever they were participating and um, facilitating and having their ceremonies on their ancestral homelands. Oh, yeah. We were being surveilled. We had helicopters um, throughout the duration of the entire ceremony, which was kind of weird. Um, but we also had a moment where people who were on the ground, um, Afro-Indigenous and African and Black organizers, were able to participate in the ceremony that Muskogee people had held um, to really call on solidarity and reintroduce themselves and um, reestablish their kinship with their territories. And it was, it was such a beautiful and surreal moment. And so um, there were moments like that that happened during the, the week of action. And there were all kinds of other events that were taking place that were examples of what I like to say, the people's voice, the people's resistance. And um, you had different spectrums of actions that were taking place. You had youth marches, you had uh, the community movement builders, a local Pan-African um, organization on the ground who were having a rally to um, combat the narrative that Black people and African people were not supportive of the Stop Cop City movement, which has been the narrative in the media, and especially in a place like Atlanta. Right. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so you had like different um, groups of people who were engaging in struggle. Then you also had folks who were um, protesting and, and activists who were camping out in the um, in the Walani Forest to to physically put themselves in that space to stop Cop City. And um, again, like there's just a spectrum of different types of actions that were taken. And I always like to, you know, share with people because there's been a lot of controversy over some of the actions that were taken that, um, as like Dr. Martin Luther King said, like a riot is a voice of the people, mm -hmm. you know, and mm -hmm. I think that what had happened in the way that people have been engaging in struggle is very much a reflection of the resistance that is that they've been met with while they're trying to protect the land and protect the people. Yeah. because whether people are drawing those connections or not, it's important to name that what happens to the land happens to the people who are on top of it. Yes. And so um, when we see, you know, an institution um, that is from the original slave catchers and Indian killers, yeah, native murders, um, like such as the police industrial complex, um, completely bulldozing and deforesting an entire community, 80 acres of a public 
forest that is the largest forest within the southeast part of the United States mm-hmm. is is something that we need to talk more about because you know in this current moment when we are battling climate change when we are battling um, struggles of you know our relatives like our non-human relatives the land um, the four-legged creatures the air creatures the water creatures we're all under attack yes and I like to believe and I and I felt when I was on the ground in Atlanta that people felt that way and people were were feeling the sense of urgency that we need to change something we need to do something different and we need to do that now and to be able to be in when I had camped in the forest to be surrounded by people who you know were sharing songs around the fire but who were also sharing stories and um having conversations around politics and you know what what we're doing here why we're here Mm. um was really beautiful and it it was very it was very intense like I don't want to romanticize the struggle because amidst all of these very beautiful moments we were being surveilled we were being followed um I know like my tires um in the van that I was in after marches were were slashed my relative was taken and and is incarcerated and being charged with domestic terrorism charges i have two two close comrades of mine who i have who i've lived with in other camps who are incarcerated who were one who was just grabbed like a snatch and grab at the music festival who was um literally checking on their on their puppy and just happened to be snatched up by the police and um there was a lot of, you know, intensity that was happening in those moments. And I really want to acknowledge that, like, the state really brought a lot of those moments of, of you know, heartache and yeah. sadness and intensity, um, fear. I would even say, like, a lot of people were afraid for those of us who were sleeping in the forest um, because they were afraid, like, that we would get raided, grabbed, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And that's just like, you know, interactions with the police. That's not even interactions with people who are not affiliated with the police that were also probably um, benefiting from the deforestation of this area and the, and the construction of a cop city. Mm-hmm. Um, I like to draw upon some of the relations that like um, the police industrial complex is, you know, goes hand in hand with the deadly exchange. Um, that's where police officers are taken and they are trained in occupied Palestine to um, use the same tactics that the Israeli defense forces use on Palestinians to enact ethnic cleansing. And um, that's something that was very beautiful to see as well as like there was panels between African and black um, revolutionaries about Palestinian liberation inside their communities and spaces. I also saw the local community having um, community gardens to mm-hmm. really invest in their own communities to ensure that their folks are are educated and, and can see those intersections, which is, I think, very important is how we are educating um, each other and ourselves and bringing in people who hold and have the that knowledge um, to share it with each other. Because I, again, like I said that I had seen several people from different struggles. And so that first week um, and then the second week that the, the week of action that I was there was was very beautiful and very intense. And I met a lot of people. I saw a lot of people that I haven't seen in a long time. Um, when I got into the forest, like I was immediately like greeted um, by the trees, by the um, folks who were camped out in the forest. Um, mm-hmm. I felt really safe. And as somebody who's lived in, in frontline camps and, you know, is, a frontliner and a land defender and a water protector. For me, it's it's very important to share like what it's like to be in those spaces as an indigenous person. Mm, yeah, and it was really hard. And um, I'd really like to like share a little bit about some of my experiences as a native person inside that space. Yeah, yeah. Because I hope that like things will be acknowledged and changed over time in the ways that would move in a good way with one another and making sure our struggles and our movements for liberations are, are on the same, I don't know, like side path. Mm -hmm. And so um, that was a little bit about some of like my first interactions and going into the forest and it was super tense. And there were definitely instances when there were some important conversations around decolonization 
mm. and um, uh, conversations with like um, terminologies, conversations around, you know, the assassination of Dorothea Gita and how Dorothea Gita is just one of many um, indigenous um, or detribalized or um, indigenous ancestry um, organizers and activists, uh, if you will, who have been murdered at the hands of the state in the name of profits and greed. And um, like Dorte Gita is not the first climate activist to be murdered. Indigenous people have been murdered since time immemorial for protecting our homelands. And I think that that needs to be acknowledged. Yeah. But that's also to say that Dorte Gita is joining a long line of, of Indigenous people, of ancestors who have put everything on the line to protect, you know, our relatives, our family, our hearts. Um, because attack on the land is attack on us as Native people. And so it was very beautiful to be in a space where, like, I was meeting um, Tortequita's relatives um, and to be in a space where people were elevating some of the things that Tortequita had said before they were assassinated is something of great importance. It also is important to name that, like, it was very unfortunate to see the ways in which the state had been able to target and single out um, a brown forest defender in that space. And it gave me a lot to think about and a lot of like support that I wanted to offer around how do we take care of ourselves and how do we take care of those of us who are um, a bit more vulnerable or have bigger targets painted on us because of who we are and where we come from and what we look like. And so those are just some of the like really intense conversations that were being had. Some of the moments that really, really stick out in my memory about like my experiences when I was in Muskogee territories. And um, it was such a beautiful space. And I know that it's just going to continue to grow and get better and, and more conversations are going to be had. Um, these types of movements are always really really intense and, and rocky you know when they first start because yeah. <laughs> we have to unlearn so much and we have to talk about you know the conditionings that we've all been force-fed and brainwashed with that's that can be hard to come to terms with and to sit with but it's necessary for the liberation and the struggles that we're hoping to intersect and build together absolutely thank you so much for sharing all of that um just as you spoke, I keep thinking about the narrative that is being promoted in the media. Like you mentioned that this this myth or narrative, this lie that yeah. no Black people care about this or that they even support Cop City. And, and the other narrative about outside agitators being the trouble, you know, the, the ones causing all the trouble and all of this stuff that anyone who gets to the forest will see immediately is just not true. Um, I mean, for one thing, you are coming from outside the area, but you were invited in to share the unique knowledge you have. Yeah. You know, you didn't invade anything. You were invited in. And I was really thankful. Um, I'm very new to the movement. Um, this latest week of action was the first time my wife and I got to visit the forest. and. Yeah. Um, it makes so so much of a difference um, to go from hearing about it um, and trying to keep track of what seems like lies and propaganda and and what you know isn't um, to actually get there and interact with the people. I was I was so grateful to the people who sort of welcomed us in. Mm. It's very life giving. Um, to get to visit, like what you brought up about Muskogee people being able to practice their ceremonies, even in the midst of this violence and this threat that should not exist, that beautiful things are still coming out of it, just really, for me at least, speaks to the power and the love of the people and the, and, and the power of solidarity. Mm. Um, even even while keeping in mind, like, thank you so much for for pointing out. And I think it's something I I need to ponder further what you were saying about how do we make this movement as safe as possible for the more the most vulnerable. So yeah, thank you so much for bringing that up. Well, of course, and I, I feel like that's why it's so important that 
Indigenous and Black and African people are a part of these spaces is because Mm -hmm. it's just a matter of it's our lived experience. And um, we can't expect people who have not lived and walked to the shoes in the past that we have to understand what it's like to be in the struggles that we do. And we do feel like the intersections. And I think that like those of us who are part of those intersections, whether it be, you know, trans communities and queer communities, like we know the types of histories that we have of resistance and of and of care even. And I think that that's something that people don't talk about enough is um, how do we ensure safer, because right, we can't make really safe spaces, mm-hmm. but like safer spaces for ourselves. Mm-hmm. And something that I often think about is like security culture. I often think about how we talk about the movement and how we talk about the struggle um, when we go home, how we're uplifting and having those conversations with our communities. Mm-hmm. Um, I was really intrigued, I guess, um, about the narrative that I had heard around outside agitators because mm-hmm. I thought that was interesting. I was like kind of taken back by it um, until I was on the ground and I realized this is like a narrative that is being shared by the mayor and by the state to uh, criminalize and um, position themselves as like we're a part of the community these people are not right other people inside this community and space shouldn't work with these people because they're outside agitators and we are part of the community and they did that so well you know the, yeah <laughs> um, the colonial spaces just really painted that so good and um to be a part of actions and spaces where like black folks were challenging that mm-hmm. was literally like a cherry on top for me because <laughs> I was just like this is really beautiful to see them create spaces for themselves and bring their community in to support and help uplift the conversations around stopping cop city and specifically um you know talking about black lives matter and talking about the history of the police even mm-hmm. with um you know officers who are of our communities who are brainwashed and trained in an institution that is, again, derived from the original slave catchers and patrols and the original Indian killers. And I think that it's important to say that, like, you know, oftentimes the people in our communities who become police officers and become a part of these systems end up adopting those mindsets of the colonial system and then perpetuating that harm. And I know that's like a hard conversation to have but to see our black and African relatives engaging in those conversations in their communities was, was very much like an honor to be a part of and to see like there were moments when it was all black and African relatives and myself in a space and to really, really talk about um, black and indigenous solidarity was, was, is a conversation that I feel is, you know, the tip of the spear for what liberation could and should look like Mm. for the rest of the people inside our territories um as the people as the communities that are most marginalized as as the communities that are most disenfranchised and disproportionately represented within the system um and even like the deaths of people from our communities are not accurately reported um and given any platform on um it's really beautiful to take that power um, as a part of the community and elevated ourselves and mm-hmm. and to say like no you're going to hear us and you're going to see us and you know it, it felt like in those moments just to share a little bit like of the type of honor that I felt inside some of those spaces like I was walking next to um, my ancestors and what I like to believe my ancestors threw down with their ancestors because mm-hmm. some of the earliest Um, African slave revolts with indigenous people happened right after 1492 in the early, I think it was 1506. Mm. So like our resistance and liberation and solidarity goes way back. Yeah. But that's not a history that we talk about. And um, in those moments, like I was truly honored to be in a space where I was like, we're going to make space and we're going to take space. And we're going to bring our our relatives and comrades in so we can have a united front and struggle. And um, I really just hope to see that continue to grow and and build. And um, I believe that people will see that in the near future as well, because we we do have plans. We have plans to um, really show up for one another in the long run, because when 
you exchange kinship as indigenous people with with um, our other Afro indigenous relatives, like that's a life um, obligation and role. Mm. And so um, we show up for one another. That's what it means to be a land defender and a frontliner and a water protector. And those are very much indigenous terms. Mm-hmm. They're rooted in indigenous struggle, and they're um, they come from our like centuries and generations of resistance against colonial occupation. And so um, I'm really excited to see what the future holds for this movement and for um, the broader movement of of Black and um, Indigenous solidarity and all of the ways that we can plug in, you know, our comrades into those because we need everybody, right? We can only liberate ourselves. We all have a role to play. We all have important places in these movements to keep it going. And so I'm just really hopeful for what's to come. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much. I, I agree with you about feeling excited about where things are headed. Even there's so like just the flood of violence and like currently what's going on with the folks who are arrested at Mm. the concert who are still not being allowed um, to make bond or bail and all like, Mm. it is so disheartening. And then, but if you move past the sort of despair and and get out there, you'll see how many folks are showing up, and mm. and it just from like it's brought me so much hope that you know the the movement's not going to be shut down, that it's just going to get louder. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think. I think there was one more thing that I kind of wanted to ask. Um, kind of a general thing moving back to being two spirit and if you had any any specific thoughts I feel like you've sort of referenced this idea but if you have anything specific about where you think the intersections that we've been talking about when it comes to being anywhere outside of the western binary right how that intersects with this kind of movement Yes. Um, thank you for giving me an opportunity to share a little bit more about that. I feel like um, oftentimes their relatives aren't given enough space to talk a little bit about how our identities make us who we are and mm-hmm. almost in a lot of ways really set the set the path for us to walk where we are brought to these spaces. And mm. um, I first want to acknowledge that the term Two-Spirit was coined by our Ojibwe relatives during a Two-Spirit gathering. In the um, near like Ojibwe territories Um, and it was a term that was meant to create space for all of the indigenous people who have gender variants or non-gender binary spectrums um, in our communities and so two spirits very much an umbrella term just like queer and trans is Um, every indigenous community has their own understanding of a two-spirit role or people within their communities Um, and I do want to also offer that a lot of communities have lost um, their relationships with their Mm. um, cultural or traditional um, gender roles due to colonialism Mm. Uh, when the colonizers first came um, to enact you know god gold and glory um, the first people that they took out um, were two-spirit people and in my tribal community and Diné communities um, a lot was lost because our people were, um, you know, we were we were liberated in every sense of the way, and so sexually, gender-wise, etc. And um, they would capture anybody who was, you know, out of the binary, and would and would murder them or send them to um, insane asylums where they would test on them and do <sighs> things, mutilate them, and do terrible things, and so. Um, the history of two spirit people here in this in these territories is is something that's very powerful to talk about because in my community and I'm sure in many others, two spirit people were the folks who would oftentimes be in a position of leadership because they intersected so many parts of our communities. Mm-hmm. They were able to offer different perspectives and and how to include and bring everybody with us when we made big decisions that impacted the community. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's kind of a little bit about Two-Spirit people and where we come from. Um, Two-Spirit is very much specifically an Indigenous um, term. Right. It, is, it is used for Indigenous people and only for Native people. 
Um, it is very much a term that's very political um, and it's an umbrella term. And so um, kind of after sharing that history, um, I want to share a little bit about like who I am specifically as a yeah. two-spirit person okay. and some of the comrades that were with me that were two-spirit. Mm-hmm. Um, we had two-spirit people from, um, I believe, like our entire contingent, which we had over 20 Native people from all across Turtle Island, including from the South, including from outside of the United States. That's awesome. Um, and all of us were queer, if not also trans and two-spirit. Beautiful. Yeah, so it was, it was a beautiful... It was a beautiful gathering. Yes. We had one auntie, I think, who was who identified as being straight. And I think that she was the only one. <laughs> <laughs> You've got to have one, right? <laughs> Represent. Yes, you have to have one auntie there, you know, keep us in line. <laughs> but um, <laughs> so um, as a two-spirit person, you know, identify, if I use like English terms to talk a little bit about how I identify, identify as like pansexual, identify as gender fluid or gender queer. I like sometimes use non-binary, but at the end of the day, like I always resort back to like two-spirit because Mm -hmm. who I am as a, as a person is very much, and as a two-spirit person is very much grounded in my um, cultural responsibilities and obligations within my tribal community. Mm. And, um, you know, in my community, uh, in the Diné communities, we've always had, you know, multiple um, gender roles. We don't have, you know, body essentialism. We don't have where, okay, you have these parts, you're this person. Mm-hmm. We've always left it open for people to decide for themselves, like, what role are you wanting to take up in this community? And then you would, like, essentially be a part of that category of or gender role. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's always been very free and very, um, you know, we've always been big on autonomy and big on, like, you choose. You're, you make that decision. And then you do it well. (laughs) (laughs) And so, um, you know, there are a lot of trans people in my community. There are a lot of queer people in my community. There are a lot of people who identify as as two-spirit versus trans. Mm -hmm. Um, I think sometimes folks have a hard time with the translations into English. Um, You know, we don't see ourselves as as a binary. We also don't see ourselves as people who um, always need to, like, you know, conform to what a specific gender looks like or what like mm-hmm. colonial systems have dictated what this is or isn't. And so right. um, me as a Nugla person, I identify as Nugla Nabahi, which um, kind of translates to the two spirit at war. Um, and that just means that I am somebody who is very, very big on the protection of my people and like mm. um, really supporting the health and wellness, the safety and the community defense that exist in spaces with, with other two-spirit and, and indigenous people. Another note, um, how I see myself as a two-spirit person, um, I never been normal um, is like how I like to start out by saying like my whole life, um, I would go to doctor's appointments around different things that would happen, that had happened to me, whether it be trauma or whether it be a checkup um, around my body. Um, and I was always told that I was abnormal, that I was irregular, um, because my body doesn't function the way that people perceive me to be. So like when people see me and the, and the parts that I have, they perceive me as a woman. Um, and I'm very much a feminine person, <laughs> um, but I don't necessarily identify as a woman, mm-hmm. identify as, as an ugly person, as a two-spirit person, as neither man nor woman. And um, I am somebody who has struggled with what that means because I didn't understand my body for a long time. Um, as I said, I don't have like the functions of a woman. Like I um, don't have periods. And for me, like growing up, that always, that always was confusing for me because I was always being told to take Western medicines, which my family was very much against to regulate my body functions. Yeah. And um, when I first began um, getting involved with my Nugla community and my tribal community, it was the first time in my life people told me the way that I am is exactly the way that I should be. Mm. And that um, I get to define who I am and what I am. And that um, there is nothing abnormal or irregular about me that I am like just as I am supposed to be. Mm. 
And um, in that process, I was able to come to terms with the way that my body is. Because I think that like the way that Western systems try to make me feel because I was perceived as a woman and they wanted me to to have the womanly or like specific functions that they attribute to womanhood, right? Um, yeah. which I think is ridiculous because there are a lot of people who are not women who have a lot of similar body parts or have similar functions. And um, I think that it's important that people respect that because it exists and those your body and the way that they are, the way that it functions is not representative of who you are as a person. You get to define those things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was very blessed to be brought into my community and, and a circle of folks who are, a lot of them identify as trans women. Um, a lot of them also identify as non-binary um, and, and two-spirit people. And to have a community that reminds me that these colonial systems were, are foreign to, these, to this land and to these spaces. Yes. And that um, a lot of the trauma, the shame, and the violence that sometimes I feel when I interact with Western systems is because of Western systems and that our systems have never been that way. Yeah. You know, we had a, we also had a Muskogee relative who um, had shared a little bit about their um, community and um, their two-spirit people, and they themselves identified as two-spirit, um, share a little bit about how hard it is to have conversations that are talking about, you know, um, two-spirit people in, in, like, just even our communities sometimes, but also especially in movement spaces specifically. Um, and so there was a lot of different two-spirit people who have different understandings of who they are, where they come from, and their relationship to their community and tribal communities. And um, that was, is something that I think a lot of people could learn from Mm -hmm. because, you know, these have been practices and and values and systems that we have had since time immemorial. And um, we're still here today. (laughs) So we're doing something right. Um, And I think that, you know, a lot of the times when we talk about the struggle um, of trans liberation and, and queer liberation and the liberation of the LGBTQ plus community, um, we oftentimes leave, leave out a lot of our intersex communities, our two-spirit communities, yes. and a lot of indigenous spaces that, um, you know, can and will define themselves and have been. So to be in spaces where I am surrounded by LGBTQ plus relatives was very beautiful. Um, I just feel personally much safer in spaces where I'm surrounded by my community because Uh a lot of us, you know, um, have a background in, in researching ourselves or, you know, just trying to understand ourselves and understand our relationship to our community and to the world around us that oftentimes there are a lot of intersections of politics and values that we have. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that, you know, it was, it's not a surprise and it's, it's not new to see some of the most vulnerable people on the front lines um, because this is all we got and this is the best way we can exist. Yes. This is all we have. This is how we, you know, protect one another. This is historically how we've, won the rights or or advocated and fought for the rights of other people including ourselves um and so this is very much like historical and it's very much like aligned with history um that we are people who are at the beginning of of a movement or inside spaces that are beginning to have conversations around change and um and it has everything to do with the fact that this system is very much against us and we are forced. Yeah, like you all, you already know that the system is hopeless and built to destroy. Um, you don't have to. That's not that. There's no big revelation for you there. <laughs> so <laughs> exactly, and it's and it's something that you will experience as soon as you begin to challenge the binary or you begin to transition, and you start to see the way that people start to react to you and talk to you and be towards you. And um, I think that that is something that, you know, we have to be prepared for, you know, any movement space, any frontline space, like we're going to be there. 
And how are we going to create a space that ensures that, you know, there's at least some safety precautions and safety nets in place for us because we have to have our backs because we're the only ones we have our own backs. Um, We have, we got us, we have to have us. And so it's something that I think about often is um, how do we continue to like keep each other safe and how do we continue to challenge one another? Mm Because I don't think, you know, it's, well, none of us are perfect. Right. And we're all human <laughs> and we all make mistakes. we got learning to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so to uh, really encourage that amongst our communities is something that I, that I look forward to because I also have a lot to learn. And I feel that, you know, I wouldn't want to learn from any other people. And so, and I, and I would hope that people would want to learn from me too. And so, mm-hmm. um, that's a little bit about like the two spirit peoples um, and communities. And um, again, like we're all distinct. We all have like different languages, different cultures, um, different understandings of our place inside our communities and then interactions with Western communities. And um, we all have different stories and how we relate to our bodies and, and how we, you know, come to understand, you know, what we're doing and, and who we are in relation to the colonial state and occupation of our lands, you know, and again, like we, and my family, um, and I come from medicine people and the Diné communities, um, like herbal practitioners and other cultural practitioners, um, that we believe that, um, it is not okay. And we will challenge and we will stop, um, people who shame or make fun of, uh, and LGBTQ plus people inside my community. And I'm very proud of mm-hmm. the fact that my our cultural practices are very much aligned with the protection of queer and trans people in my community. Um, that's to say, you know, like Western civilization has colonized a lot of people and that is not how every Dinah household and community is, but I'm very proud to say that's how mine is. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, I, I have a lot of support from um people in my life um specifically like a lot of extended family and um knowledge keepers and practitioners um on the reservation who who live our ways of life who are very supportive of the work that I do as a frontliner and as a water protector and um go out of their way to really support and create space for um Nugla young people and Nugla um elders who are trying to take a step back into our communities and resume their rightful place as people who um, understood different ways of life and could advocate to protect different people in, in our lives. And so I really hope that we'll continue to have conversations around two-spirit people because um, I'm not going to lie, you know, and I really want to just set the record that there are a lot of pretendians and there are a lot of people who don't understand some of the terms that they use in our spaces and our movements. And that needs to be challenged. Mm-hmm. And we need to create spaces where we can challenge and critique each other. Um, because I feel that, you know, it's very harmful for us to, you know, not include each other and, and not um, critique one another and critique each other's movements. And we always have more to learn and, and stuff to, yeah. to change. And so we got to be more intentional about conflict and conflict resolution in a way that allows us to grow and hold each other accountable. Um, and so that only happens if we engage in conversations like this where we're talking about it, mm-hmm. not in the midst of a conflict, but outside of it as a as a bigger picture as something that has to happen. Yeah. And just like, I feel like a lot of Western culture is centered around always being right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you and and to be wrong is like a moral, moral failing. So it's hard to unlearn but it's it's vital like you're saying like that holding each other accountable is how we remain in community it's not an attack on community exactly and like that's how we keep each other safe that's Mm -hmm. like i think it's something that needs to be said like if we want to keep each other safe we need to learn how to work through conflict in a way that's not harmful that's remembering like yeah we can wild out with like colonizers but we can't wild out with each other (laughs) Um, we gotta we gotta be very intentional about you know how we move forward with one another because we've all experienced some form of trauma and violence because of our identities and our in our communities and 
you know, I, I want to honor and respect that. And also be, it's because I care about you because I want to build with you that we should be having those hard conversations as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much. Um, I so deeply appreciate your time. Thank you. I appreciate it. I am deeply grateful to see Hassan for coming on and sharing some of their story and their insights. And so thankful to you, dear listeners. If you are moved by what you've heard, please consider donating to one of the funds I've included in the episode notes, or consider spreading the word about what's happening here in Atlanta. Stay tuned for more interviews in this series. The next one will include advice for how you can get involved, even if you live nowhere near Atlanta. In the meantime, get out there and stop Cop City, break some binaries, and be a blessing to the world with your life.